This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This is 1A. I'm Jen White. What many call Spooktober is coming to a close. But on this Halloween, we won't let the month go without talking about all things spooky, scary, creepy, and crawly. Turn on the patio lights. Here's Johnny! Horror movies can be scary, terrifying, even gross, but they're also often meaningful. And how they're being told on the big screen is changing, too. The amount of jump scares in horror movies are down to their lowest point since 2014. That's according to the Washington Post. So this Halloween, how do we find meaning in horror movies? Are tropes just tropes? Or can they have meaning, too? Beware, we're discussing all things horror movies after this short break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in a moment. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's bring in the experts. Joining me now is Kenitra Brooks. She's a horror scholar and the Audrey and Johns Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies at Michigan State University. She's also co-editor of the Black Horror Anthology, Sycorax's Daughters. Kenitra, it's great to have you back. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me again. 
Also with us is Brandon Callender. He's an assistant professor of horror and black queer studies at Brandeis University. Brandon, welcome to the program. Hi, happy to be here. Happy Halloween, everyone. And John Jennings is with us. He's also a horror scholar and professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. John, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. John, to your mind, what is the difference between a movie being scary and a movie being horrific? Well, um, you know, I think about the idea. Well, we talked a little bit about the idea of the jump scare, right? I mean, the jump scare is this tactic for, you know, elevating uh, the, the, the blood pressure or the heart rate or like reacting to something very physically. And I think the idea of horror is something that's more of an of emotional affect, right? So we say horror movies, but a lot of times people are measuring things by how scary they are. And so quite recently, uh, there was this project called, um, I think it was called the, the, the Science of Scare Project. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they actually like hooked up people to like, you know, uh, EK, you know just machines, EKG machines and things like that to kind of register what their average heart rate was during a, a movie. And so they were, re- they were registering like, you know, the the physical reaction to being scared, right? Which is kind of, it, it passes, but horror is the thing that actually like stays with you after the film, you know? And so I, I think that's a little bit more difficult to, to measure. Like something that's actually horrific is actually like really unsettling on a very like existential level. And so that's where I look at horror and, and scares, right? Because scares physical, horror is more psychological to me. Kanitra, so. what are the key elements that distinguish horror from other genres? I believe the key elements that distinguish horror from other dramas is that horror is often the controlled exposure to trauma. And it allows us to explore our fears from the safety of our couch. Uh, the What ends with horror, though, is we get a cathartic ending. Oftentimes with really good horror, we get a cathartic ending. So we get to be exposed to our fear, to have control, to be able to control our fear, and then to end up with some sort of release at the end. So that cathartic release that is part of the reason why we want to go see a horror movie in in the first place. Brandon, why do you think you're drawn to this genre? I, I mean, I've loved it ever since I was young. I think that the reasons are changing now. One thing that stands out to me, and I, I talk about this with my students a lot, is that I think I originally came to horror for a kind of recreational release. And so in terms of, I love what Kanisha says about controlled exposure. Um, I go now to it as a scholar to think about what makes us frightened, to, to John's point. Um, it's interesting when you, when you hear from a lot of Black horror experts and folks who are working on horror, what scares Black folks is sometimes entirely different than what the movie is about, you know? And so I think in that regard when I go to horror films these days, sometimes I go for the pleasure of turning off and for just being able to laugh at a really good scare and scream. And other times I'm going to think about, you know, something meaningful. And so you never know where you're going to be caught. Um, But I think my reasons actually change depending on the mood that I'm having or the day that I'm having. When you think of a a film that exemplifies that, that deeper meaning you're, you're talking about, Brandon, what, what's a good example of that? Uh, I think a deeper meaning film in the, let's say, there's films, to, to to put it into two categories, there's films, a lot of the 1980s films, I think, that felt like they drew to mind really important issues without necessarily making a statement. So one film to me that's incredibly meaningful 
is Black Christmas, which is not about Black folks, um, <laughs> but it is a lot about reproductive justice. And a lot, one of the things that I think in that film, it, didn't, it wasn't a film that was really setting out to make a point, but it's one that really throws into mind a lot of concerns surrounding women's bodies, men's controls. But then films today that I think um, are more readily available to meaning are ones that are often trying to make messages a little bit more clear in their script. So I think that, I mean, obviously the folks I think people go to a lot might be like Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. It might be films like The Babadook films that are thinking a lot more of how we process our trauma. And so those, to me, feel to be films that are a little bit more directly trying to make these messages clearly present in their storylines, whereas a lot of the older films, I think, um, they were doing, they were working in meaningful territories, but a lot of it's the meaning that we bring them today. John, when you look across American film history specifically, what films come to mind for you that were horror films that reflected societal anxieties? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, man, there's so many. I, yeah, I, I think a lot about, like, you know, um, images of monsters a lot, you know. So one of the um, one of my favorite monsters or, or, or characters in general is Candyman, mm. you know, it's based on the, um, the Clive Barker short story. And um, when they adapted that, uh, story, which you know, originally Candyman wasn't a, a, a black man, and it was an English story. And so, what ends up happening is when they bring it to America, they situate it in Chicago, and think about how these particular types of racialized, oppressive spaces kind of manifest in this um, in this 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 character, Candyman. And so, you know, what I love about that film, and actually the the kind of like requel or a sequel or, or, or spiritual sequel that just came out in 2021 by directed by Nia DaCosta, it, it actually um, kind of like metastasizes in this like this 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 body that's dealing with these different types of stories around race and around like um, what actually is affecting us. But one of the, one, the, the main things it deals with is like the trauma of like the black body in, in this black space. So that's one of my favorite ones. And um, is see, Brendan also mentioned the Babadook, of course, which deals a lot with grief, you know. So I like the idea of, like, the monsters having, like, these mediated experiences. You know, quite recently there was a movie called Sweetheart, for instance, that where the monster represented, like, self-doubt or patriarchy, things of that nature. Kenitra, horror movies have certain tropes we've come to expect often, not always, but often. What are some of the most recognizable tropes that come up in this genre? One of the most recognizable tropes that come up in horror is that of the final girl. So the uh, girl or the protagonist that survives in the end and who ultimately defeats the monster. This girl grows over time and she starts off many times as chase, um, innocent. But as the movie goes on, as she goes into the fight for her life, she becomes in some, in some ways, uh, even more predatory and monstrous than the monster themselves. Another, um, another trope is that of the slasher. Right. And there are also uh, we have Mike Myers, uh, we have Jason, we have Freddie. And then there are 
then there are monsters that have become so iconic that they become a trope unto themselves. I think Freddy Krueger is one of those monsters. I think Candyman is one of those monsters. Um, then, you know, Michael Myers is one of those monsters. And you can see that in the ways in which Hollywood keeps going back to that well to mine for more and more stories about those iconic monsters. Let's take a quick break here. We'll discuss more monsters when we return, including my favorites, zombies. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. All right, let's talk about zombies. Uh, One of the earliest appearances of the zombie traces back to Haitian folklore. They were a depiction of the fear that people who were enslaved in Haiti by French colonizers had about being enslaved for their entire lives. Now there are movies like 28 Days Later, there's shows like The Walking Dead, where zombies are something for other people to fear. Kanitra, one of the reasons I really love zombie movies is that it ends up being, for me, less about the zombie and more about the humans, the remaining humans, and what they are willing to do to survive. It's sort of like the worst of humanity comes out in these experiences, or or the best. How do you think the meaning of the zombie movie has evolved over time? You know, really good zombie films and television shows are in a way psychological experiments. And so they're looking at the choices people make in order to survive. You know, do you become, you know, ruthless and a killer, a lot like Negan in... um, in the Walking Dead, the character yeah. Negan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or do you come someone who accepts that um, you must do violence, but also find and achieve a sort of peace and one with it, but also caring for the people that are around you? We start to see that with Michonne. We see the character Michonne. We see that with the character uh, Carol. Or, and this shows my bias here a little bit, do you become an incompetent leader that continuously gets your people in trouble? <laughs> A la Rick <laughs> and The Walking Dead. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, un, my, my concern and also my fascination is in the choice so many humans choose to reinforce previous hierarchies, mm. to uh, try to build society like it once was instead of creating new ways in which to operate and love and care for each other as well as to defend 
and uh, ourselves against common enemies. And, and so, you know, what choices do you choose to make to keep your humanity is, I think, the ultimate, um, the ultimate question of the zombie horror. Brandon, what's the most interesting way you've seen a monster used to create meaning in horror? Oh, I love that question. Uh, let me think. One thing I like to do is take a film and almost regard it as a cultural event. So to read, not just watch Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street, but say to read the different novelizations, the graphic novels, all of these things that shoot up. And so part of how I think about the meaning that monsters portray is to do some of that deep dive into the different representations around them. So say one of the, um, the films that someone who just phoned in mentioned, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That creature is often thought about in terms of a fear of, you know, communism, everybody's going to be the same. It's sometimes thought about in terms of queerness. I've seen people make that argument. One thing that appears in the book but not in the film is there's a really, for me, really um, heart-wrenching representation of race where you see these these creatures that inv- that signify um, conformity. There's the, the scene where they walk in and they're sort of mimicking human gestures, showing they know how to pass. One of the moments that prepares us for that in the novel is actually the scene where the white narrator goes, leaves his college campus and sees this black shoeshine man who shines his shoes every day, performing contentment in the work that he does. And the white man thinks he's so happy in his job and in his servitude. And when he encounters that creature, the, the, the black man on the campus, all of a sudden he starts um, hyper-performing how, how broke down he is. Like, yes, I love shining shoes. I love shining shoes. That's what I love to do. And he starts, you see the, the, the sort of um, horror of the body snatcher that can assume and claim and perform identities is actually prepared for us and framed for us through this encounter of a black man who has to perform a role every day. And so I think in these regards, um, the monster for me, one thing I could say is I also love not rehumanizing monsters. I just came back actually from a monster conference in Santa Cruz. And w- this was one of the really big conversations we had throughout the weekend is that for groups who, again, have been monsterized or portrayed as other, there's a really big push in importance to see the monster bail um, Grendel's mother, to see Sycorax, to see these figures as human. Um, and I love that I think there's an important politics behind that. I think rather than humanize all of our monsters, the horror fan in me also just wants some of them to remain scary. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's some of the ways that I negotiate what monsters can represent for the different people who watch them. Kanitra, how have we seen the idea of possession used in horror and how is that changing? Oh, it's changing in so many ways. Um, I always talk about in mainstream horror, the idea of possession is always read as demonic. But when you start to look at other traditions, other religious traditions, the idea of possession becomes a place of power. People who are able to be possessed uh, are thought of as holy. And uh, also possession becomes a way in which to pass down knowledge. People who are possessed are are, are um worship, but also they give give prophecy. What we see in The Exorcist Believer, and there was a lot of pushback against 
the exorcist believer. And I think for some very key reasons. One, it moved outside of the Catholic dynamic. So it brought in Protestantism. It also brought in traditional African religious practices. So there was a root worker that participated in the exorcism as well. So we got to see how different religious traditions reacted to and treated um the act of being possessed. They also moved outside of the priest dynamic, right? This male religious figure dynamic. We got the inclusion of women. We got the inclusion of, uh, again, the root worker who was a black woman, but we also got the inclusion of an older white woman who worked and who was a a former nun um, and who worked uh, and led the act of the exorcism. So we're bringing in ideas of the divine feminine, of women, women's relationship with God. And we can see how some of these questions and some of these themes that were brought up can make some people and more traditional fans of horror uncomfortable. I'm thinking about one of the more recent possession films. I I think you can call it a possession film that came out earlier this year. Talk to me, John. Did you see that movie? What'd you think about it? Oh, man. (laughs) I was... uh... I was really blown away by it, actually. I mean, it's a it's an Australian film. Um, it's another one of those films where it's uh, it deals with like teen angst and loss and and transition. Um, the main character has lost her mother, and there's a, a a game that's being played with this embalmed hand where you touch the hand, and you can see spirits, right? And then what? And then when you say like you know, uh, talk to me, you know, it kind of enters into your body, and you have a certain amount of time to. Uh, that it can stay in your body or, it, or, or bad things will happen, so to speak. And of course, those bad things start to unfold. And so it also deals with like addiction as well and almost how we're like addicted to grief, you know? Um, it's a very unsettling film. It has a great twist ending. I don't want to give away too much, but I'm, I was really, um, I don't know, I, I, this, it came out this summer and I had, I had recently lost someone very close to me. And so it, it, I think when I saw it, it hit me differently because of that loss and, uh, you know, that longing to want to talk to someone that, that was on the other side, so to speak. So it, it definitely like pulls on a lot of different tropes that we're used to, but it seems so plausible because, you know, teenagers do wild stuff when they're, you know, coming of age. And so it treats it as this kind of like teen prank, but also it just becomes like this really intricate, like layered, uh, horrific experience, actually. So, yeah, I, I loved it. I want to pull on that grief thread because, Brandon, when I, as I'm thinking about some of the, the movies that I watch, the horror movies I watch, there is often this element of grief that is at the foundation of the story, a lost loved one, um, a lost child. Um, something tragic has happened in the protagonist's past. What role do you think grief and grappling with grief plays in the genre as a whole? Mm. I love that question. I could say watching the new Scream, the 2020 version, I think it is, is really wonderful for this. Because without spoiling that film, there's a really interesting conflict between an older generation of horror fan and a younger generation of horror fan. And it, it plays out through the kind of film that the heroine likes in that, that first movie. She likes The Babadook. She likes Hereditary. She likes Midsummer. She looks those sort of films that really seem to take grief and make it central to what horror is processing. And I think that has a lot to do with what folks often think of as elevated horror, as horror films that they're a lot more of a slow burn, they're a lot more of an exploration of what grief and suffering look like. And those, are, I think, are the films that often get a lot more recognition. 
And so I think in that way, there's a really interesting and intergenerational divide that's playing out between, I think, a, a, sometimes an older generation of horror fans who are like, I don't like meaning in my films. There's actually one of the dismissive phrases for this is go woke or go broke, hmm. that films that are processing um, social realities today and the traumatizing effects that come with it are just trying to make money. And so that's part of that discourse, I could say, too, to talk to me and to link it back to what Kanisha was talking about, Possession and The Exorcist. That's one thing I really love about that movie, which is, for me, like, like John says, very hard to watch. But the way that those kids are interacting with this, this hand that possesses, that when the kids are taken over by the spirits, they perform very body things. They say very sexual things. They take on very grotesque faces. And one thing I love about their response to it is they're laughing. And that says a lot about how films like The Exorcist has aged over time. I actually wrote an article on The Exorcist looking at James Baldwin's response to it. And part of what folks were, were grappling with is, as audience members felt a sense of... I, I, I hear the music coming on. Uh-huh. Should I pause? No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, yeah. um, that I think audience members are feeling a sense of seriousness and fear when watching The Exorcist. But you watch it today, and people laugh when Reagan spins her head around and vomits, mm-hmm. right? And so in the film, like, Talk to Me, I love that shift from comedy um, of teens laughing to all of a sudden it becomes something more serious, something more traumatic. So, Before we head to the break, I want to go to this email we got from Anne who says, I've loved horror films ever since watching Chiller Theater in the 60s and 70s while growing up outside of Pittsburgh. My all-time favorites are Black Sunday and The Changeling. I love a good supernatural story. And Felicity emails, I've always loved horror movies. The Blob scared me silly. I watched with a blanket over myself and the television so my parents wouldn't know I'd snuck down to watch the creature feature. Jeepers Creepers is not the greatest film, but still one of the most creepy endings ever. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Things we're scared of or horrified of are at the center of horror stories, but I'm also thinking about how vampires show up in these stories. So they're dead, they kill people and suck their blood, yet they've become sort of like desirous figure in a lot of storytelling, think Twilight. Kanitra, how does desire also play a part in telling horror stories? I'd like to connect, um, I'd like to connect that idea of desire with some of the previous conversation we've had about conversations around grief. The reality is, and because, uh, these um, vampires reflect our cultural de- desire, our cultural anxieties. It's really that we lack, as a culture, um, healthy processes around grieving. 
right? We don't have, so people hunger for this desire or, or desire the other side or those things past the veil because we don't have an overarching idea or process in which to deal with um, our loved ones when they move on. Um, so this is seductive. We also have to look at how vampires have reflected other problematic and racist and anti-Semitic themes in our society. You spoke earlier about Nosferatu. Nosferatu, the film, was also problematically so and a, um, a metaphor for the, you know, invasion of Jewish people into Western Europe. So you have Nosferatu with these problematic um, facial features. You have the idea of Nosferatu able to turn into rats. You have in which the cultural anxiety in which white Western Europe felt against folks who were Semitic then played out on the screen in horror in such a uh, vivid and um, disturbing way. So we also have, as you move um, through time, with the idea of the vampire becoming a sort of uh, fear of miscegenation, and you have in which the vampire is able to penetrate in a more sexual manner. So the act of being bitten is seen as a sexual desire or sexual act. You also have in which vampires thought of outside of humanity and outside of God's grace are able to procreate in a manner outside of what is considered God's grace. So they are able to create more vampires through the simple act and the sexual act of biting. And then you have in... um, in Dracula, the Dracula story itself, in which Dracula is seducing these good, upstanding, innocent white women away from their families. So we see that with Lucy, in which she is seduced and brought away from her family and turns against her family, becoming one of Dracula's brides. So therefore, the vampire uh, reflects many of our cultural anxieties about race, about anti-Semitism, and asks us to, again, question the politics of who is made monstrous and why. I will never watch a vampire movie the same way again. <laughs> I will never watch a vampire movie the same way again, Kanitra. Uh, thanks for all of that context. I want to circle back to to one thing you mentioned, which was how bad we are at at grieving in the West and, and how there's not really a space for us to to experience grief in the way we see in other cultures. And that makes me wonder, Brandon... Part of what makes a horror movie fun to me is watching it in a communal setting, that you're having this shared experience. You're all jumping. You're all, you know, "Ah!" like everybody does it and then kind of laughs nervously because you've all reacted at the same time or you're all scrunched down in the seat. There's something about that experience. How how do you connect that to how we watch horror and and the types of movies we may be drawn to? Hmm. I think so. One thing comes to mind in terms of, you're, you're so right, the context in which we watch these films have so much to do with our reception of it. And there's something is so pleasurable about getting in a theater and having everyone respond on cue. One thing, this is a, a little um, to the side of grief, but in terms of comedy, there's a really wonderful scholar, um, David Gelota, who has this book, Dead Funny, where he talks about what he calls cringe comedy. How cringing, which is also a bodily response, is something that is present in, say, a film like Get Out, right? 
where we, we cringe together as an audience at watching the baffling, you know, not-so-quiet racism of white liberalism at the table. And so it was interesting when I saw that film together. I often share this story where um, before the, the film came on, there was this trailer for Baywatch, and they had this really awful joke. The joke was, you know, what do you mean by you people, said by Zac Efron, and he meant lifeguards. Mm-hmm. And the whole audience started laughing. And this one black man in the audience, who's a predominantly white audience, says, no, no, <laughs> no. And even after the credits end, he still said, no. And it was so lovely to see how out of sync we all were, right? Because then when the film came on, everyone behaved on cue. Like white men were hurling themselves out of the seat at all the right moments. They were expressing, shock, I can't believe they would say that. And it's so interesting to think of how how we respond to films. I just screened The Howling last night for an audience. And people were laughing at moments the film was not intended to laugh at as a 1980s film. And so the way that a film can draw us together in something like grief or comedy, I think says a lot about the different subject positions we occupy, right? The mm-hmm. certain, certain things that might make someone laugh in another case might um, draw us back to a really harmful image. One, one last thing I'll say on this is really phenomenal poet Justin Philip Reed has this wonderful essay, Killing Us Like They Do in the Movies, which is him processing while privately watching at home grief, um, while watching Scream, he's thinking about the murder of black folks. And he's showing how his experience as a viewer um, leads him to have a different relationship to this film. And so I think that's, if I can close off on that point, what happens when you have private viewing experiences like streaming, like watching DVDs at home, when you're not surrounded by other audience members and their responses to them, you never really know what feeling's going to come up for you. And I think that's, um, yeah, it's one of the most exciting things to watch in horror scholarship to watch the private reception versus when we gather together what groups and who's in the audience with us and who's in the audience that does respond, that does change how we respond to a film. And that's kind of amazing to see. John, how do you think horror succeeds often in talking about itself? There have been a, a string of movies that tackle the tropes in horror movies. How often is that successful? Um, <clears throat> I think over the years, I mean, I think it has been pretty successful. I mean, you have things like the Scary Movie series, which are kind of like, you know, um, analyzing different tropes in various types of movies across the spectrum of horror. Uh, things like Scream, of course, were extremely meta to the point where you have like points, like don't do this, don't leave the room, you know, these di- types of things. And um, of course, like most recently in The Blackening, which is looking at like um, representation of blackness in in, in, in the horror movies. So um, I think more often than not that there's a connection, uh, like Brandon was saying, like to to comedy as well. Um, you know, both of them, horror and comedy and uh, satire, they both rely on timing and uh, extremely uh, intellectualized ideas around embodiment, different ways. So yeah, I think I think we have had a, a spectrum of successful uh, kind of meta meta fictions about horror, definitely. Before we go, what's an interesting subgenre each of you have discovered and would encourage people to check out? Brandon? <laughs> um, I'm not even sure I would call it. Well, one thing that I'm reading right now, if I can answer it this way, is I'm reading this interesting scholarly collection on called Highway Horror, and mm-hmm. it's looking at films, um, the horror of being on the open road and all the different discomforts that it opens up. One thing, I also really love the film Jeepers Creepers. Films like that's in there. 
hitchers in there, joyrides in there. Mm -hmm. But there are some really interesting anxieties of masculinity on the open road that seem exhibited throughout that franchise. I think it perhaps has to do with the idea of, you know, when you get a car and all of a sudden you have the, the freedom and excitement of movement, and then all of a sudden there's a guy following you, you know? And so there's, there's, that's one of the really interesting small ones, I could say. Also, clowns, very interested in clowns <laughs> these days. There's a, there's a wonderful book that's actually a study of all horror films representing clowns, but I'll boost here, There's No Way I Die First by Lisa Springer, um, a black final girl horror novel which features a clown, um, Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Cesare is doing really interesting work. But there's, and of course, it. But there's some really interesting, um, how do I say, tensions and possibilities that open up when you start to look at how these specific subgenres allow us to explore certain fears. What about you, John? Actually, you know, I, I'm. It's more of a medium, actually. Uh, people kind of ignore horror comics, actually. There's been a really a, a really big uh, influx of great horror comics out there right now. One of my favorites is The Silver Coin from Image Comics uh, from Michael Walsh. It's like a, a cursed coin, and it's an anthology series. And it basically follows the history of this particular coin. So it's like coin as monster. You know, things like Lock and Key by Joe Hill, uh, Philadelphia by Rodney Barnes, um, you know, there's a bunch of... Gideon Falls is another great comic. And, um, you know, The Keeper by Tanana Ribdu and Stephen Barnes and Marco Finnegan. So there's some great comics out there that people should be checking out because a lot of these tropes come out of the 1950s horror craze from, like, Tales of the Crypt and things uh-huh. of that nature, too. Kenitra, I'll give you the last word. Oh, I love the Black Final Girl. So movies like 28 Days Later, Alien versus Predator, Demon Knight, especially Alien versus Predator, because she gets to go on a date with the Predator. And my secret is I've long had a crush on the Predator. <laughs> well, we'll end it there. That's Kenitra Brooks. She's a horror scholar at the Audrey and John's Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies at Michigan State University. She's also co-editor of the Black Horror Anthology, Sycorax's Daughters. Also with us, Brandon Callender, an assistant professor professor of horror and black queer studies at Brandeis University, and John Jennings. He's also a horror scholar and professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Jorgelina Mana Rea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Boo. We'll talk more soon. This is What A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. 
And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.